welcome back everyone to another episode of vikingology the art the and art. science <laughs> the art and science of the viking age i'm cj adrian host number one i'm terry barnes host number two and today our guests are rainer oscarson and william short authors of the book men of terror many of you will have already seen an interview i did with them on my other podcast but this is their first appearance on this podcast We'll be talking about uh, weapons in the Viking Age, swords, spears, ships, shields, a little bit of glima, but not too much because we did that on the last podcast, but a lot of fun information today that we're going to cover. Anything to add, Terry? Um, no, probably just all that. It, uh, it's all that sexy stuff that people think of when they think of Vikings, the swords, the shields, the axes, all of the killing weapons. And completely smashing our preconceptions about them right chiefly that the primary weapon of the viking is a rock <laughs> exactly. <laughs> let's dive in okay okay cj before we go there i hope you don't mind i'm going to take a detour because i think it's important sure. let's do it. before we talk about the methodology we use maybe it's good to say a few words about sort of who we are and what we are because you know we're many people don't understand what Herstwick is and what our organization is. And we, I just like to say a few words about that. And basically we are not reenactors in any sense of the word, you know, we are, our activities don't mirror what reenactors do and we're not academics either. We don't teach or lecture uh, or we don't teach a course at the university level. Although we have taught, we have lectured, we do research collaborations with universities. So we're not academics, we're not modern day Vikings, whatever that means. Uh, we're not that cool. You know, we're not neo-Vikings, we're not uh, ancient Vikings, we're not anything. So it's really important to us that we disassociate ourselves today from those people who lived a thousand years ago. Um, it's dangerous to do that. And we've got to keep that separation clear in our mind as we do our research. So what are we? We're a group that researches Vikings and a lot of our focus has been on Viking combat, but we're interested in everything Viking and it's history-based, it's science-based. Um, you know, when I started this research uh, almost 25 years ago now, I didn't really think it'd have that big a, 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 an impact, but surprisingly it has because we don't believe that it's possible to understand Vikings unless you understand the combat of the Vikings. It's so intertied, so interconnected in their society. And so understanding the weapons, understanding how the weapons were used, understanding how all this fits into society is essential, we believe, for understanding the Viking people. Um, so we have to be really careful in our research to make sure that we don't go off the tracks. Uh, let me just use a, a, an example that I like to talk about. Suppose we wanted to understand how Viking swords were used. How would we do that at Herstwick? And we would start by looking at the archaeology of swords. Uh, we closely examine what the surviving Viking Age swords tell us. And that doesn't mean reading about them in the book. It doesn't mean looking at them through the glass case of the museum. It means going to these collections, going to the museums and actually picking them up, looking at them, measuring them, getting a sense for what they really are, how they're put together, how they survive, what they might have, how, how this fits into that society. 
And then we start looking at the literary sources. What do the literary sources have to say? You know, the sagas, the eddas, the law codes, what do they all have to say about weapons and weapons use? The rune stones. And when we look at these ancient literary sources, we're not just looking at the translations. We're not just even looking at the editions. We actually go to the manuscripts and read what the manuscripts have to say, because there are questions of interpretation and in going from the manuscript to the edition. And, and then of course, huge questions when going from the editions to the translations. And importantly, we look at the etymology of words, the origin of the words. And something that's fascinating, because they sometimes tell us what the, what the object is used for. But very interestingly, the Viking Age people seem to categorize things very differently than we do today. So for instance, one word might have covered many different things, things that today we would categorize very differently and vice versa. Sometimes many words are used for what we would categorize as the same thing. And weapons are a good example of that. So for instance, swords are called sverd, brander, uh, meiker. For example, there's, there's at least three different words that I can think of off the top of my head. What do each one of those words mean? Is there any distinction between them? How are they used? When are they used? Where are they used in the literary sources? What can we learn about sword use from how these different words that all seem to mean sword, how, the, how these different words are used? And then we'll go look at um, pictorial sources, um, see what we can find there about the use of, of these weapons. Uh, we'll do a lot of computer modeling. We've been doing a lot of work lately in doing 3D scans of these ancient weapons that give us really detailed physical models. And from these physical models, we can tease out all kinds of physical parameters that would be very difficult to measure otherwise. And we're correlating what those physical parameters are, which ones are important, not to us as researchers, but rather what are the ones that are important to the swordsman, to the warrior? What really mattered to someone? What, what would have been significant to them? And it's, it's surprising what, what seems to correlate with what, um, what, what seems to matter. And then to this physical modeling that we're doing, you know, this, this going deep into the physics of the weapons, we're doing these motion capture studies where we see what the motion of the warrior is as he wields these weapons. And these two together allow us to do a lot of calculations on, for instance, how much energy is this weapon putting into the target? What is the destructive uh, capability of this weapon? And it allows us to do what if kinds of calculations. What if the sword were longer? What if the ax were shorter? How does that change how it feels to the warrior? How does that change the energy that it delivers to the target? So we're going deep, deep, deep into the physics of these weapons. Um, but in the end, we need to we need to make it physical. We need to do physical experiments in our research laboratory. So we make measurements of these weapons. Uh, we do cutting tests where we use sharp replica weapons against some suitable target, which for us, based on our research, the only target that makes sense is something like an animal carcass because all of these other stand-ins for targets don't seem to be good enough. And then finally, the final test would be basically simulated combat, some sort of force on force test where you've got two subjects, one of whom wants to make something work, wants to test something, wants to see if it'll, it'll function. And his partner doing everything possible in their power to make it not work. So some sort of force on force uh, simulated test. And from all of these together, we try to synthesize how swords were used in the Viking Age.
So it's not simply going out into the into the backyard and hitting each other. It's it's much deeper than that. Oh, Rainer, do you want to add something? Uh, no, you, you you sort of mentioned it all. I think. Okay. Uh, yes, I will plapper. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. uh, what what is also really important is to uh, yeah leave our modern mindset out of this and understand we're not doing actual combat and that we are not actually Vikings fighting. This is just testing, so we don't uh, uh, we don't see ourselves as Vikings uh, killing each other, even though we're just hitting with blunt weapons. And we don't. We also our method is to try to falsify. So we make a theory and we try to break it. We try to falsify it. We don't try to uh, make it fit our agenda or whatever. Is some of this methodology borrowed from other? other firms that are studying weapons, but of different eras. So for example, the gentleman, I'm spacing on his name right now, but he has done work for the history channel. He goes out there with weapons and has dummies. Then they test the force of like, cert, like he did a, a test with a katana and then a European broadsword from the 15th century to see which one could cut through bamboo better. And so are, are you borrowing methodology from other firms around the world that are also studying weapons from different eras? So CJ, if anyone is doing this kind of methodology, I am unaware of it. So no, we're not borrowing it. Um, so it's unique to your, to your- As far research. as I know. Yeah, as far yeah, as I know. Awesome. Especially the depth and the breadth that we're doing. Uh, it's, it's kind of crazy, quite honestly. Uh, some of the crazy things we've been doing to try to understand weapons use in the Viking age. I guess, could, could this methodology be used to study other eras and weaponry and stuff like that? Of course, and we hope people will. Yeah. But what? I was going to say, uh, yes, it can, but nobody cares about other eras of history. <laughs> Amen. Sometimes it feels like that. <laughs> I go like I go around just in my little small town, and people find out, oh, you like the Vikings, and suddenly I'm their favorite person in the world. Like, <laughs> if I had said Romans, they would be, oh, well, that's boring. Why, why did you study that? <laughs> yeah. 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 So as, uh, as far as the studying these weapons, one of the things, and I, I like that you're making clear that you don't think you're Vikings, you're not trying to be Vikings, but there are a lot of people who are. Yes. And in those communities, and I am privy to a lot of the conversations that happen in those communities because I write historical fiction. So I border kind of on the, between that, you know, here's the academic side, here's the fictional yeah. side. And one of the arguments is what was the most popular weapon used by the vikings and i'm wondering if the two of you could settle that debate for everybody on the internet because there's some people who say because i always talk about the sword was kind of like the the corvette right they'd buy a sword mm -hmm. and is more of a status symbol so it's like the guy down the street who buys a corvette right so look at this nice sword that i bought but they had a whole variety of tools in their arsenal so which one stands apart if, if there is one I will just mention briefly something, William, and then you can take over and then I'll follow you. Okay. So uh, it's 2022, nearly 2023. Anybody can be anything they want, uh, Viking or not Viking. What, I, what we're saying is uh, it will pollute our research drastically if we see ourselves as Vikings, just to make that distinction clear. So to all you Vikings, neo-Vikings, ancient Vikings out there, stay strong. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um... So CJ, in answer to your question, I don't think the debate will ever be settled. 
all we can do is look at the available evidence, try to come up with a conclusion. But short of having a time machine at our disposal, we're not going to find out. Um, what the evidence seems to show us is, uh, first of all, I'll talk about the, the thing that many people do not realize. Many people think of swords as something exotic uh, in the Viking Age, that they're rare and not common. And the status symbol that you were mentioning, CJ, but our, our research suggests something different. Uh, as we were writing the book, we started looking into this and we saw so many swords in the literary sources. Uh, they, they make up a huge percentage of the weapons that uh, are described being used in the literary sources. And then we started looking at the archeological sources and there are way more swords than we thought. And so we did this survey of the Viking Age swords compared to other Viking Age weapons in the Norwegian archeological records because they were easy to search. And swords, there's nearly as many swords as axes, nearly as many swords as spears. So it's not like they're uncommon. And um, as being status symbols, again, there's some, some new research that suggests that um, these swords were worn routinely. So it wasn't like it was something that you kept uh, hung from the wall or anything like that. The research suggests from the wear patterns that we see on the hilts, that these are something that people were constantly wearing, constantly handling, uh, even constantly fondling, if you wish. So uh, all the evidence puts together suggests that swords were not in any way uncommon and maybe not even particularly status worthy. Having said that, all the weapons are different. And so each one has its own use and people may have preferred one weapon over another for a number of reasons. Spears are very economical. They don't take much metal to, to, to make. They are very easy to make. Um, so it seems like a spear would be a very typical weapon. Axes were multi-purpose. So there is distinctions between weapons axes versus tool axes used for cutting wood, but it's, one could be used for both if need be. So there is that economy. Uh, Rainer, what have I missed? Uh, just add a few, uh, few notes on the sword thing. Uh, this is again, uh, uh, we wrote an article called uh, Traps and Pitfalls of the Modern Mindset, and I hope you all read it. Um, it's about the, the sort of uh, difficulty of researching ancient people when we live in the modern age. And uh, one of it is uh, a trap we call it the ultimate truth, the ultimate authority, sorry. That means somebody said something at some point and therefore it became the truth. And uh, uh, so uh, Herstig is lucky to have me because I'm sort of the idiot of the group. I came there uh, not as a reenactor, not as a, a Viking enthusiast. I didn't care about Vikings until I met William and he poisoned my brain and destroyed my life. Uh, uh, thank you for laughing. Uh, so what happened is uh, when we were writing this book, we had heard, I had heard a million times that uh, swords are a status symbol. And I was researching. And I, I read the sagas, massive amounts of swords being used. And I thought, wow, it's sagas, exaggerations, uh, literary conventions, and so on and so forth. Then I checked out the picture stones. And I thought, wait a minute. Why do they all have swords? So from there, we went on to the archaeology. So uh, not everything is true, even though somebody said it in the 1950s. Uh, now, about the what weapon is best? Well, it depends. Are you on a ship? 
and you want to throw something uh, to the other ship, then a rock or a spear might be really good. A sword might be that useless until you get closer. So it depends on the situation. Sometimes they carried more than uh, one weapon, but I assume the the the, the main focus tool uh, in combat for a warrior would be the shield. That seems to be like the the all through. If you don't have a shield, you're unprotected. You're a bear skeleton. So I would flip it all around and say shield. You can attack with a shield. It's my understanding. Yeah. Right. Well, mostly. Mostly it was used as a defensive tool, and uh, there are occasions where they use it, but there are really strange occasions, like to uh, pen a man in. So if they don't, if they want to capture him, they could uh, rush him in with the shields and close him in. And, and we tested it out in sort of this uh, dynamic simulated combat, and, and it works wonders. It's really twisted. You're just locked up. Like, what happened? Why am I? You know, I, I really appreciate that you guys made the delineation with with the sword of saying, well, we say it's a status symbol because somebody in 1950 said it. And I, I had never questioned it, you know, speaking to that authority <laughs> and whatnot. And while you're speaking, I had a thought in my head where I thought about the research that's been done on the Ulfbert sword in particular, yes. which has the the high quality steel that should have been unavailable to Vikings, but somehow it was. And they have found north of 100 specimens, haven't they? Yes, which is which is incredible because if we think about like a helmet, for example, there's like one, mm -hmm. right? And and even shields. And and uh, to your point, William, we found more so, as many swords as spears, which is unusual. And I've seen that before, and I still didn't question it in my head mm -hmm. <laughs> of maybe there were more. Although in my books, they fight with swords a lot, so I th I did okay there probably. But I. <laughs> But to be perfectly honest, I made that up. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the Ulfbert, though, if I'm if I understand correctly, was you know produced in some kind of workshop on the continent that spanned at least probably two or three centuries. So you know the output could have been fairly substantial, and especially if they had the reputation of being high quality sword i mean I, i've also read that there were knockoffs you know and you can tell somewhat with the spelling on the on the sword as well so they were popular and interesting items it appears for people to obtain um i also note that i did read your piece on on your site and that you talked about swords being land cruisers rather than ferrari <laughs> but i think i would i would argue that there can be both mm -hmm. right you know, obviously there can be both. And I do think that for a certain level of society that there could be a certain quality of weapon that would mm -hmm. be a symbol for sure. This is very common in all of European history, probably all of medieval history in the world. Mm -hmm. So, so I'll, if I may, I'd like to add a few words about the Ulfbert sword um, because they are very interesting and they have been much discussed in the popular press uh, with you know, TV documentaries and, and many articles, both popular and academic. So it's worth saying a few words about the current status of thinking about the swords. Um, for people watching this who may not be familiar with it, there are a number of swords from the Viking Age which have an inlay in the blade near the grip. And there are several different variants. Uh, there's Ulfbert, uh, there's Ingleri, there's uh, misspellings of it. There's, there's a number of variations. But these swords 
seem to be, and I'm choosing my words carefully, uh, there is a sense today that they were highly prized in the Viking Age. And the swords, some of the swords that are Ulfbert swords are indeed fine swords, and some of them maybe not so much. And it was speculated that these swords were made with crucible steel. So steel made in a crucible, which would have been unknown to the Vikings. But there is the, it is known that crucible steel was made in the, um, uh, the Near East and India, and there would have been trade routes that would have made it possible to bring this crucible steel to the Viking smiths. It's also believed that all these swords were made in a workshop or a few workshops uh, in what is now Germany and then distributed to the Viking lands. And so that makes sense as well. There's good evidence for that. But the crucible steel seems at this point to be pretty thoroughly discredited. There was a, a excellent study done, I think it was uh, 2021, where a couple of Ulfbert swords were analyzed, and it appears that they're just normal steel that would have been available to a Viking Age smith rather than being something magic or exotic. So to me, that is sort of the last nail in the coffin in terms of Ulfbert being made out of some magical material. They just seem to be well-made Viking swords using materials that a Viking smith could have made. Are they pattern welded? Uh, uh, some of them are, oh God. Terry, uh, I'm not going to answer because I do not want to say, I do not think they are pattern welded. Yeah, I do not think they are. So one of the things with the crucible, and I've, I've read this and I've always kind of been curious about it too, is um, the fact that these could have been somewhat prized because given the nature of just sort of charcoal, wood, what have you, that the, the Scandinavians were not able to achieve heats high enough in order to get that quality of blade and so that they would purchase the blades elsewhere in the continent but then maybe manufacture the hilts back at home and of course also just make lower quality um, steel or iron weapons back at home is that what you found as well no terry our our research would suggest something different first of all it does seem to be the case that most viking swords were made on the continent rather than in scandinavia that does seem clear but that doesn't mean that a smith in one of the Viking lands could not make a sword. Uh, it seems like their ability to make iron and steel were sufficient that they could have made materials good enough for a sword blade. So I don't think there's anything in the metallurgy and the, 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 the skills of the smith that would have prevented a Scandinavian smith from making these blades. So don't have a good answer for why the evidence seems to suggest that many of these come from continental sources rather than Scandinavia sources. Is there something else that prevented a Scandinavian smith from making a sword as good quality as um, the ones on the, on the other side of the sea? Don't have an answer yet. Maybe it's just cheaper to steal them. <laughs> well, in Iceland, when you cut down all the trees, you can't get enough wood to make a heat high enough in order to yeah. forge the thing. Yeah, that didn't happen until long after the Viking Age. Yeah, yeah the deforestation was yeah. centuries after the end of the Viking Age there. Yeah, yeah. So as far as, so swords being this exotic, so the mystery endures, we're not sure about Ulfberts. Thank you for shattering that dream. Um, 
it was and so then, exciting. It was such a great plot device to throw into my books, but I can't use it anymore. Yeah, yeah, um, no, but but please be aware that this is still being researched. You know, the, the final course, word yeah. is not yet said. It's just all I want to do is bring down the level of the enthusiasm just a notch from what you what you see in some of the popular articles and the popular tv shows and whatnot it's the 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 research at the scientific level is still ongoing but right now it's it's right now it does not look good for these being made out of some magical unobtainable material like crucible steel I would though enter a caution here that I always uh, express to my students and that is to try to uh, discourage all or nothing thinking. Mm. Uh, if you have workshops producing those swords for that amount of time, it doesn't mean either all of them were the best quality crucibles yeah. or none of them were. You know, yep. it, it could run the gamut for sure. Yep. Spectrum. Yep. Mm -hmm. The follow-up question I have, and it just occurred to me, just thinking of the Ulfbert swords being found as Viking swords right but if they're produced in carolingian lands do, do any of you have an awareness of artifacts found in carolingian graves that have the same or were they all exported to scandinavia so was this a an exclusively i don't i don't know the answer to that so yeah i'll throw i'll answer if i may uh so Ulfbert swords are found uh, extensively throughout Europe. No, let me rephrase it. Ulfbert swords are found throughout Europe. So the one that I am most familiar with and have handled the most is was found in Spain, uh, as an example. Might have been brought there by Vikings, but maybe not. It, it seems to have characteristics more typical of Southern Europe than from Northern Europe. So it seems like these, these blades did travel. They did get around Europe. So kind of like the to your analogy of it was more like a, a Land Rover, you said, instead of a Ferrari. <laughs> so it's like if in a thousand years they find a crashed Land Rover in the Congo, it doesn't mean that yeah. that was an exclusively African car, right? Right, so, or that it was made there or anything like that. Exactly, yeah. This is one of the things in medieval studies in the academic world in more recent times is just kind of like you all were saying, you know, you sort of get this, the party line, and then it gets repeated and repeated, and then somebody finally busts out, you know, and, and what have you, I think famously with Vikings, probably Peter Sawyer in the 60s, you know, like change the game a little bit, but the, the idea of, you know, these people who, other than if you're going on crusade or something like that, you pretty much just stick in your village and, you know, do your thing. And I mean, for average people, maybe that's so, but I think there's a lot more research going on about just how widely traveled and how much on the move people were across the medieval European world. And so many of these things can get from point A to point B very easily. Uh, and especially with people like the Scandinavians who are traveling essentially by boat, at least farther than any of their contemporaries at the time. Yeah, exactly, Terry. The amount of travel that seems to have been the norm for people in the Viking Age was extensive, I, way beyond what existed, in my opinion, let's say 200 years ago, or 200 years after the Viking Age, or 300 years or 400 years after. During the Viking Age, there seems like there was just excellent communication among all the Viking lands. And so travel and exchange of ideas and exchange of trade goods was just, just pretty typical. Yeah, yeah. So it's something that always... No, oh, please go ahead. go ahead. No, please go ahead. I was just gonna call, follow up with, so as far as swords not not commonly being produced in Scandinavia, what weapons were commonly produced in Scandinavia in droves and not imported? Um, 
I'll try to answer that. And there's a bit of speculation here and people who are practicing Smiths don't necessarily agree with my ideas, but I really do think that making a spear or making an ax was not outside the realm of capability for a typical Viking age farmer. Every farm had to have a forge for maintaining their farm tools and being able to make and repair iron objects was a necessary part of the life for these Viking age people. And making something new, such as a spear or an ax head seems to be within the realm of possibility for almost anyone who in that era. Now, what we see from the literary sources is there seems to have been people who are better at it than others. Uh, a couple of examples that I can think of in the literary sources where someone wants to make, let's say an ax. And so they go to someone else's forge whether that someone else has better tools, better capabilities, uh, more experience doing it, whatever it may be, there are some people who are better at it than others. But I think the idea of turning out something that you could use as a tool or a weapon is something that was in the capability of pretty much anyone. So anyone if can make a spear. With farming now, you can, if you're familiar with farming now, you know that that's true still. Yeah. 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 You have to be a jack of all trades. You have to be able to fix your equipment. You have to be able to fabricate. You have to, I mean, speaking from experience, well, not my personal experience, but my husband and I own a Christmas tree farm and he is one of those people, you know, yeah. he's an untrained expert welder, fabricator, whatever, but it's just because of necessity. So I can't imagine it would have been much different. Right. So in answer to your question, CJ, uh, I suspect it was not difficult for someone to make an ax, not difficult for someone to make a sword, but it does seem clear that the skill required for making a sword is sort of head and shoulders above those other weapons. So one would expect that a sword would require specialized tools, specialized knowledge, specialized skills that might've been beyond the reach of all but the very best Smiths, but I don't know. Mm. And could the same be so as far as tools being fashioned into weapons? So there's some fashioned as tools. I mean, and we're talking about a 300 year period where things changed over time. So early in the Viking age, the nature of weaponry would have looked different than at the end of the Viking age, just from improvements over time, etc. But for as far as like that, making a, a drawing a parallel with with the swords, or is there another weapon that also would have required a higher skill set? That we see fairly commonly that um, could have been produced in Scandinavia. So basically what I'm asking is, was there another, is the sword kind of unique in its class or was there something else that could have been produced that needed to be produced by higher, uh, higher skilled smiths as well? So in my opinion, the sword is unique in so many ways and the difficulty of making it is just one of those ways. Rainer, do you have something to add? Anyway, I mean, we see swords in, in Norway, for example, the single edge and so on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, and all tools can be can be made in a really prestigious way or or with a lot of bling on it. But uh, yeah, the sword is the sort of uh, one of the two highest inventions that we think of when we think about the Viking age. The other one is the uh, ship, 
both meant for violence. Because we were talking about before, we were talking about uh, Norway and the statistics on, on weapons. Please remember that some of these uh, axes are actually wood axes, and some of these spears are actually hunting spears. But the sword has only one use. Yeah. So, we're uh, saying something else that comes from the physics of the swords, and that is the sword is really different than all the other weapons. Um, I mean, they're all intended to deliver destruction uh, to the target. But the sword adds something else to that, and that is uh, maneuverability or elegance or something. So an ax is a meteor flying through the atmosphere and smashing the ground underneath it, huge amounts of power, but uncontrollable. Whereas a sword is more like a guided missile that is still has huge amounts of destructive power, but can be guided right to the last instant to, to get around defenses and go exactly where it's intended to go. So it's, it is unique in a number of ways. So it's not to stoke the ire of the internet, but the sword was basically the automatic weapon of the Viking age, right? <laughs> This one's obviously not for hunting. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say the lightsaber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Keep it light. Yeah, uh, maneuverability so I... and el elegance. Those are the words I like to use. This actually reminds me of um, studying the Spartans and the, uh, the importance in the training, as it were, of music and dance mm. uh, in order to be able to to do all of those things simultaneously, right? To, to, to sort of choreograph this kind of movement that involves dexterity and strength and flexibility and everything, you know? It's not just this sort of, I mean, it is on some level this sort of brute force thing, but you know, like you're saying, I mean, it takes a level of skill that had to have been trained from fairly early on, I would imagine. I know that we found like, like tiny wooden swords and things like that that are somewhat believed to be maybe children's toys to sort of start getting them used to this early. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Manu, would you like to add to that? Yeah. So we are really careful. Uh, when we have an idea that we that is not really uh, strong, we, we sort of just uh, leave it to the side because the opposite might be true. So um, did Vikings train in sword use? We have no idea. Uh, what we know is that uh, we, when it all comes down to it, we have three pillars of understanding Viking combat. Number one is the aspect of the empty hand fighting, the klima, the, the, which is the national sport of Iceland today, and a lot of rubbish on it on the internet, so don't look at it. Uh, <laughs> but that's all about power. Who yeah. is the stronger man? Mm -hmm. So it tells us how uh, Vikings dealt with um, some confrontation, some physical activity. It was with brute power. And if you look at anything else, you will see the same power uh, element in it. The other one, the other idea is this concept of uh, drinkur, mm -hmm. uh, like the mindset. And drinkur is uh, uh, a person who is really courageous, but you can trust. He will tell you if there's an ambush going on. He will uh, follow you on a raid. He will fight to the very end next to you. And the third one is the sort of the improvisational uh, adaptability, which is sort of uh, seen best in their, in the king of Viking weapons. Now, I said the shield, the other weapon is, of course, the rock. 
they brought rocks on with them on boats. They uh, looked for uh, a superior battle location when they were fighting, a V, and that is a higher position that has loose rocks on it. So they threw rocks left and right. So if you understand these three concepts, um, uh, if I had somebody who was good at the uh, Glima, had somebody who had the concept, had the mindset of a drinker, and understood this uh, uh, adaptability of throwing rocks, and I would hand him a sword, he would perform pretty much as a Viking. So we don't know if they trained or not. Now, there might be. There is re really limited sources behind that. We know they, they did Glima left and right. But training, we don't know. I just know that if I had a person with these three pillars in mind, and I gave him any of the Viking weapons, he would probably perform really similarly as a Viking. And, and I'll continue blabbering for a moment. Please bear with me. When I met William for the first time, uh, I was a martial artist, and William had already walked the path of a Viking uh, researcher. And I thought some of his research was off, and I did not want to pollute what he was doing already with my previous background. I didn't want us to uh, cut with a sword like a Korean or, or use an ax like a Filipino martial artist. I didn't want any of that. So we had to wipe the slate clean, 100%. And I said to William, uh, we need to know this is Viking combat. Even if the combatants are wearing totally different attire, like a three-piece suit and non-Viking weapons, like a baseball bat. I need to see that this is Viking combat. The, the clothes and the weapons cannot uh, be the defining factor of the combat. So that was a long, long way to answer the, uh, the not the question, uh, but the statement training with uh, with a sword. I don't know. But we do know that they played games, a... though, right? Oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, we do know that they played games. Yes. Yeah, and games. I mean, and, and that's not unique to Scandinavian culture. Games are a way to 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 sort of simulate training, as it were. Maybe it's intentional or not intentional, but it happens cross culturally. Yeah. Yeah. But do we see games with uh, do we see games swords? Yeah, I don't know. That, that's my point. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the question there then becomes what what could sword the presence of swords possibly indicate as to the fabric of society? So I'm thinking later on the high middle ages and you have the knights with swords and their horses and you so you had a, an entire class of people who did no work other than train for war. So does the presence of swords indicate that in the Viking Age or not? And I mean, it could go either way. I argue yes, <laughs> especially in my, in my most recent article where there's, there is most certainly even prior to the Viking Age in the Vendel period, there's the building of what is called, what I call and what Thurston Veblen called the leisure class. There, there is an elite class of people and, and, and even we'll go somewhere like somewhat controversial here with the BJ581 grave, right, in Birka, Sweden, and the militarized compound that that grave appears to be kind of part of, and the, the one great hall that has like all of these blades like in the walls, like the place is manufactured out of weaponry. I mean, I think that there's probably good reason to assume that there's, you know, there's elite culture, elite martial culture going on in a place like that. I don't know. What do y'all think? So uh, there is. Uh, I mean, the the king had his hit, and they were like his bodyguards. They needed to have something above someone else, and they were asked like, "What is your ethos? 
Turkish sport. And often that would that could be with the poor Iceland, it was often poetry. Like, well, he's good at poetry, let's have him on. But often it was cleaner. Show me uh, your your wrestling skill, and then I'll put you on. Mm-hmm. So we see some like there's a hint that they may have in the in the hill trained with the sword, but it's it's so easy to say, of course, because I saw this one source, therefore. That, that's why I told you in the beginning, we are really careful when it comes to this. Because it could equally be, if you know the three pillars, to perform well. If I may add a couple of things, the one weapon for which there's fairly convincing evidence in the literary sources that people trained in was bow and arrow. And there is hunting competition, and there is mention of people going to an expert where they go to a range and actually practice their archery. Uh, And we have nothing like that for any of the other weapons, but archery seems to have been different. And the other thing I will add about the leisure class in the Viking society is, I am not so sure based on the 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 sources I have available to me, and I'll throw out a couple of counterexamples. There's just a couple of examples I can think of where even people at the highest level of society are out doing physical labor, where chieftains are out doing physical labor, and even one of the kings of Norway uh, has guests coming, so his wife sends someone out to get the king from outside and tell him to put on better clothes. So. Um, you know, in terms of some elite class that just sits around and drinks wine or meat or whatever it was at that point, I'm not so sure. I, I like the uh, that you brought up archery. There's an entire chapter devoted to it in your book. Uh, the, it brings to mind, again, going back to some of the misconceptions about Vikings that you see in TV shows and so forth, about how archery is somehow or distance you know, fighting at a distance is somehow dishonorable, but that doesn't, that is not the case, it seems, particularly as it pertains to archery. Uh, and also if you're throwing rocks at people that, you know, I, so I, there's a, there's a modern lens being applied to Viking combat tactics. Uh, if you could illuminate us on what are actual battle tactics, there's another chapter devoted entirely to battle tactics in your book, that what can we say about Viking battle tactics and what can't we say dispelling a couple of myths? You go. You go. <laughs> That's it for you go. All right, I'll I'll give it my best shot. Um, what seems to have been the case is uh, the, the battle tactics depend on these three pillars that Rainer was talking about. It's about power and it's about. Uh, improvisation, and it's about leaving the battlefield a drinker. Uh, It matters more that you are a drinker than whether you live or die. And uh, that, I think, explains some of the intense fighting and intense chaos that we see in the literary sources on these mass battles. In terms of formations or or that sort of tactics that does not seem to have been so strong yes people were arranged before a battle and in in certain orders 
leaders or commanders were assigned on the spot. Uh, and basically the two sides met, but before they met, of course, they would use ranged weapons. So spears, arrows, rocks, what have you. And it was the same whether it was on land or at sea. They were very, very similar in the, in the makeup. And then once they got close, it was just a melee. It was, it was not so different, I don't think, than when you know, small groups of people were fighting. So in terms of, of tactics, strategy, that sort of thing, I'm not so sure. Please, uh, I see from your expression uh, that you have much to say. Yeah, it is. So in the mass battle, there was it was uh, it was very akin to the skirmishes, the small ones. It was uh, this uh, idea of uh, orstir repetition: um, kill the uh, kill the flag holder, kill the king. That is your number one thing. That's where your honor lies. That's where people will speak about you. But other combat tactics are like ambushes, and they are unlike mm. you think of ambushes. That's uh, nobody was hiding anywhere. It was just we're on the way. We're coming. Uh, burning houses. That was uh, a humane way to kill someone. As, as strange as it sounds, they they burned houses and people inside them uh, in a humane way, so less people would get killed. There are what there is of course we like I talked about before the superior battle location. Virki, uh, any any uh, fenced area fortress, uh, what else are we missing, William? I can't think. Yeah, probably something we're forgetting. Yeah. Something, so I've, something I've encountered, and this speaks to this a little bit, going back to the Viking Age being 300 years long and, you know, themes and, and traditions changing uh, as those, as time passes. Early in the Viking Age, it seems that Scandinavians who went into Western Europe were not very well equipped to face, for example, standing armies put together by the Carolingians as hit and run raids. But as we progress through the Viking Age, get to 10th, 11th centuries, then we do start seeing larger organized forces attempting invasions, successfully invading. So how did, how did battle tactics change over time and and what do we know about how they changed and and what precipitated that change i'll try to answer and then turn it over to rainier um in terms of uh you, you and, and i'll try to combine this with a previous question that you asked cj that i didn't answer and that was how weapons changed and try to combine that with how did tactics change and what was going on in the viking lands from the beginning to the end was a significant change in the way these lands were governed in the beginning of the viking age there was no king that ruled over an entire land there were just lots of petty kings and earls and chieftains and so on so there was uh, and by the end of the Viking Age, there were kings who ruled essentially the entire land, a king of Norway, a king of Denmark, a king of Sweden, and so on. And that changed everything. These kings had enough power and enough wealth to be able to raise standing armies, to keep men uh, nearby, armed men, armed trained men nearby ready for use. It allowed them to build fortresses such as the Trelleborg fortresses and similar ones in Denmark and, and nearby lands. And it allowed them to have uh, um, 
levy troops. So um, the Norwegian levy troops are very well documented in the law codes, what is required, the ships they need, the weapons they need, the people they need, and so on and so on and so on. So all of these could be called out if need be, both for defense or offense. So by the end of the Viking Age, there was much more um, organized uh, military, um, both equipment and men, uh, than compared to the earlier part of the Viking Age. Now, weapons changed in some small way to reflect that. Not so much, in my opinion, in swords and axes, I'm sorry, in spears and axes, where we really see that is in the swords. Um, in the uh, migration period, Vendel period, and um, swords were, were built very differently. They were much more precious metals, made of much more precious metals, much fancier in many ways. And all the way through the Viking Age, swords got simpler and simpler and simpler, not only in their materials, like the use of precious metals pretty much vanished. They were just all steel and iron. Um, and, but also in their construction, they were made of fewer pieces, especially the hilt. The hilt construction was simplified greatly to the point, for instance, that the pummel just became a straight bar for some of the, the late ones. And the reason I think that one of the things that drove that was the need for more and more and more swords. As you have more and more and more warriors, as you have more of these um, standing armies, these, these trained men who are gu uh, guarding uh, trading centers and, and so on, you have a need for more weapons. And so the weapons be there was this need to make the weapons simpler, cheaper, uh, more easy to fabricate. And so we see that in the swords. They just became simpler throughout the Viking Age. Now, something else that was driving that was improvements in metallurgy. So it became possible to make swords that were longer. So the length of swords tends to grow throughout the Viking Age. So you could make a longer sword that would not break. So I think those are the two things. In terms of battle tactics, CJ, I have no idea. I really can't answer that. Um, it's just that there would have been towards the end of the Viking Age compared to the earlier part, more trained people ready to serve the king. And did, did those changes, and going back to, we, there's so much that we can't say about the Viking Age, but did the, how did those changes affect the, the nature and character of, for example, the concept of Drenger? Did that change at all as these, as the motivations for or the nature of warfare changed over time? Brandon? Yeah, I'll give it a go. Uh, yeah, so the word uh, drink would change. It, it, it used to be the, just for a human being. It's uh, derived from the word drangi, uh, which means what? Like a, a yeah, stone. Yeah, a, a rock pinnacle or a pillar. Yeah. Uh, and it was, yeah, it used to refer to women and men, uh, and then later uh, it referred to only uh, young boys, and that's the how it's used today in in modern Icelandic. Even though we can swear, uh, if we don't swear on the Bible at court, we can swear on our drinkskapur, our sense of trust and honor. And uh, I, you see how it still uh, carries on its weight in the Sturlungasagas. And it still carries on its weight, uh, as you could see in the law codes here in Iceland today. So uh, my guess would be just that in the Viking Age, you fought 
for your eternal life, for uh, for your earthly. When Christianity came along, you were fighting for something above that, a God. Uh, so you killed in the name of God. So it changed it, of course, uh, a bit. And we 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 are analyzing now uh, what Vikings did to save themselves from peril. So in in certain religions, you pray to God or you have an amulet that protects you, and so on and so forth. That doesn't seem to happen very often with Vikings. Uh, when Christian Vikings, uh, they pray, they are in peril and they pray to uh, what was it, King Olaf or somebody, the first uh, Saint Olaf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He sort of uh, gives his heavenly power to get uh, get them out of the the tough spot. So the the mind just changes and that would affect the combat uh, somewhat. But I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I'd have to ponder it a bit more. I would wonder too if that in my understanding of it it's it's just much deeper you know so lest we sort of make this kind of one-to-one -one connection between drinker and a warrior or, or, or just fighting in combat it's like it's a cultural ethos that's you know very deeply embedded in Scandinavia at this time and like you said it can apply to both men and women as can you know kvatar and bloider you know these characteristics that are just um again you know just deeply held cultural values about how one should behave in life, right? I mean, so I, I think it, it does extend um, so that it maybe can change a little bit over time, but it's still just characteristic of what it meant to be a Norse person uh, across the Viking age. Yeah, and I will, I will add to that a little bit. So uh, you said it's not only sort of related to combat or, <clears throat> and I'm sorry if, I, if I'm misinterpreting your words. Uh, uh, and that is true. We see it in business as well. Like uh, he was a good drinker uh, because he he traded fair, or or um, uh, somebody was a good husband. He was a drinker uh, as a husband. In most cases, though, this is uh, battle related. When they fought off and died, they died uh, defending drinkila, or or he went in drinkila. It's uh, most of the cases when we see the word drinker appear, it has to do with combat. Just uh, insanely high percentage. In the sagas, you are you referring to, or yeah, yeah, in the sagas, legendary sagas, all of it, right. and right. even in the rune stones. Yeah. But then keep in mind too, you know, the propagandistic nature sometimes of those stories, right, and why they're written and who they're written for to begin with. I mean, it's like Homer. Odyssey, Iliad, this kind of, I mean, it's, it's that the audience intended as kind of the warrior elite, right? You know, the skull's going to tell the story and it's like, you know, it's, it's always going to be combat related, right? It, it, because of the nature of why the stories are even being recounted in the first place, right? Yeah, yeah, maybe, but the data we have is the data we have. Yeah, yeah. Right. You want to say oh, a few more words about, uh, Drenger and Orstir and the connection between the two and why Orstir was so important? Yeah, I'll do it quickly. Uh, so <clears throat> the most famous quote from Hormon is uh, verse uh, 47, day 76, where they talk about that uh, your your cattle will die, your kinsmen die, everything uh, in this world will die, you yourself will die. But what will not do uh, what will not die is good Orstir, uh, Orstir if it's a good one. So how did we, so we had to do some serious digging to figure out what that meant. 
how do you attain or speed? What does that mean? And we saw that the weight is sort of uh, based on drinker um, or needinger. Now, these are not two opposites. Uh, the opposite of drinker is old drinker, uh, like not drinker, but uh, needinger is close enough. So if you build your uh, orstir up as a drinker, then you will get this uh, like good orstir that you that you can have. And we'll have to, and there are gazillion other words that you'll just you'll just have to buy the book to see it. It's a sign the is like prestige. Virding is like a mass worth. So um, in a previous interview, we talked about currency, and a, ma a man or a woman's worth is is sort of this virding, what you are worth. And this is all a mix that you mix together to figure out, find out what this orstir is. The How do you internal. Spell that? How do you spell what? that word? How are you spelling it? In Icelandic today, and uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, my grammar teacher, my elementary teacher, if I spell it wrong. Uh, o, R, and then F, uh, the Icelandic D, S, T, uh, uh, Y with a comma, and R. And we'll edit it out if I spelled it wrong. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I have that ability. Okay, uh, just as a reminder, this is our... here. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up and make sure you're right. <laughs> and just as a reminder for the re for, for viewers, this is my second conversation uh, with William Short and Rainer Oskarsson, authors of Men of Terror, uh, fantastic book, book on Viking combat, where they deep dive into all these things that we talked about. That previous discussion that we had, we we took a deep dive into Drenger, Austere, Neething, um, etc. So uh, I'll put a link to that video so people can see that too. Uh, but I think that's a wrap for today. I really appreciate okay. you coming uh, for a second time with me, first time with Terry. Yeah, it was a, a pleasure. Viking combat, Viking uh, Viking Age weaponry. I learned some fun things. Uh, chiefly, uh, the best Viking weapon ever was a rock. So we <laughs> see a lot more of that in my books. I promise you. <laughs> Okay, thank you, CJ and Terry. I really enjoyed uh, the ability or the chance to chat with you. Yeah, we'll chat more. Yeah, yeah. So and thank best you of... for not noticing my Icelandic Santas and Grilla. <laughs> Where's the Yule lads? Do you have any of yeah. those? These are the Yule lads here. Uh, Yule lad. Nice. Uh, and we're talking about uh, traditions like Tenku still being used in Icelandic. This is Grilla, the, the mother of the Yule lads who eats children who don't behave uh, well enough. And she is also, she also has a cat, the Yule cat that uh, eats, uh, she, it's a fashionista cat that eats children who's wearing last year's fashion. And uh, <laughs> just a quick, uh, Quick, quick uh, point. Um, now is Christmas time, the darkest hour. The the worlds are colliding, the, the bad world and the good world. And this is where the troll women come from the mountain to seek human flesh. Uh, and that is done today uh, in today's uh, Icelandic Yol, as it was done way back in the Viking Age. The most probably famous is Grettir and Glamour. Uh, nice. Right. Isn't uh, just a strange aside here before we sign out but the the um the winter solstice tradition like we think yeah. of christmas as this nice time bringing an evergreen tree we get presents and everything but uh in the viking age i've i've read and i correct me if i'm wrong but it's more like a night of the living dead where the drenger come a lot you know not drenger but the drogger there we go that come mm. come out right. and you know like just stay inside like <laughs> <laughs> We have we have like two uh, two seasons. Uh, 
One is the around the summer solstice, and uh, that's where you can uh, get the good things. You can pick up magical uh, herbs, you can pick up magical rocks, and uh, the spiritual world is open to you in a, in a good way. Then we have uh, Yol, uh, sort of the winter solstice, uh, and that's where all the bad things happen. This is just a scary time to be alive. The, uh, soon the elves will, will start moving, and uh, if you meet them, you might go crazy. Trolls are coming from the, the mountains. And luckily, the Yule lads are not so terrible. Uh, at least today, they give just the Christmas, but they are like this guy here. This is Hurdaskedlir, uh, door slammer. So, what he does is just slams your door uh, in the evening when he comes around the mountains. Just mischief, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They steal something from you, lick your balls, or, or, or <laughs> you have peeping Tom. And at one time, we had the guy who was looking up uh, women's skirts and they are not very PC, to tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> but mean, this is this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the basis of uh, another uh, discussion. There we the go. Traditions yeah. from the Viking Age that are still current today. Uh, yeah. Then I'll put one one last thing up. So we have these troll, these evil troll figures um, uh, coming at us. What is the most safe and secure way to go about uh, defending yourself? They, they have used poetry, they have used magic, they have burned them, they have used swords to cut off their heads, they have used church bells and whatnot throughout the folklore and the in the old sagas. But the surest and safest way that is most often used is, of course, uh, glima. Uh, <laughs> so you have to be able to do glima against these fiends. And, um, go to uh, glima.is and you'll see the Icelandic glima. Yes. I just imagine, hey, Rainer, what'd you do for Christmas? Oh, I wrestled a troll. Yeah. <laughs> As happens. Mm -hmm. Now you read a book. <laughs> That's the Icelandic tradition, right? Yola book. Uh, yeah, well, a book about Glima or Men of Terror or something. <laughs> <laughs> but it goes back to the saga tradition, right? The importance of the literature. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, well, well, hopefully we'll do this again. And then I will tell you why we have, my theory, why we have people like uh, Hafthor and the Jungpaukl and all these crazy strong men. Mm -hmm. I think it has a lot to do with the sagas. They were our sort of hope. Okay, it, it's, yeah, this is a troll you're fighting there with clean <laughs> That's at the gym. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Icelandic That's name fantastic. dropping, half door. Yeah. And that was and that picture was taken a couple of hours after I had coffee with Gutni out at Besestather. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. <laughs> and hopefully we get to do this again soon. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Nice to meet bye you. Bye.